After years of getting ripped off by big wireless providers, there's finally a better option. Mint Mobile is the affordable premium wireless service that you buy online, starting at just 15 bucks a month. By cutting out retail stores, Mint Mobile got rid of the crazy overhead costs so that you could score some sweet savings every month. To get your new wireless phone plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. When I like had to figure out how to cook Italian food, and I had to like move to Italy, and I had to apprentice out there to do that. And with Israeli food, like it was always in me, it just never showed until I was ready for it too. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and welcome to the fall season. We're back after our exciting summer season with an incredible lineup of some of the most interesting cookbook authors, and we can't wait to share our conversations with you. Now, this season on Salt and Spine, we're going even deeper. Each episode will, of course, still center on one in-depth conversation as we talk cookbooks with a leading cookbook author. But this time, we're also bringing you even more content. We're going to continue to talk with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books in our From the Vault series, and we'll also discuss latest news and trends in the cookbook industry with Stained Page News Editor Paula Forbes. And we're going outside the box, or rather outside the studio, to see the real-world impacts cookbooks have, from talking with ingredient producers to restaurant owners and more. And for the first time, we're headed into the kitchen to actually cook from some of these cookbooks. We're so excited. Now let's get to this week's show. So we are thrilled this week to have with us Alon Shaya. Now Alon was born in Israel and in his biography's words, raised on cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. He is a two-time James Beard winner and started and oversaw three restaurants in New Orleans, Dominica, Pizza Dominica, and Shaya. In 2017, Alon founded Pomegranate Hospitality, and we'll talk about what led to its creation in the second part of our show today. And this year, Pomegranate opened restaurants in New Orleans and Denver. Now, Alon's first cookbook is the story of, as the book describes it, how food saved his life, and how Alon embraced his cultural heritage and ultimately created a whole new Southern Israeli-Italian cuisine. It's a moving and page-turning cookbook, and it's loaded with 140 recipes that are going to take you all around the world, from Israel to Italy to New Orleans to Philadelphia and back again. You'll find a roasted chicken with homemade harissa. Uh, I made it last week, devoured it along with lobster green curry and crab cakes with preserved lemon aioli. There's red beans and rice, there's the tar-fried chicken, and there's ricotta cavatelli and linguine and clams carbonara. It's really wide-ranging and a beautiful memoir slash cookbook. We were so glad to sit down with Alon at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Alon. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Um, so we're here to talk about your first cookbook, Shia. Yeah. Um, an, an Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. Um, and this is a really personal and biographical book. We can see really clearly here um, that you really fell in love with food as a child and were sort of inspired by your mother's and your grandmother's cooking. But then you sort of ran away from Israeli food for a little bit. There's this one scene in particular uh, in your classroom show and tell that I think is really evocative. Can you talk a little bit about how food started to become a catalyst for you at a very early age? Yeah, I... Um had immigrated from Israel at the age of four with my family and 
life was just very different for me, you know, moving from Israel to Philadelphia and like learning how to speak English and making new friends. And it's just kind of this awkward time and in like a child's life too, right? We had a very rough transition into the country with my parents splitting up uh, about a year after we got here. And my mom was working two jobs. And, you know, I was looking for something to kind of cling to. Um, I didn't know what it was. But even from a young age of like four, five, six years old, I felt like I kind of needed something to kind of like help ground me in a sense. And wasn't thinking of it in that way. But like now looking back on it, I can kind of like see what was going through my head at the time. And my grandparents would come and visit from Israel and would spend, you know, a couple weeks or a few weeks at a time with us in our house. And my grandmother would cook. And when we, when she wasn't cooking and we weren't eating, we were going to eat like Chinese food or go to the movies or like go to a park or a zoo or, or do things that we wouldn't normally do when they weren't there. Cause my mom was working all the time. We didn't have a lot of money, but they would always come and treat us. So really that picture of coming home from school and opening the front door of the house and smelling the peppers and the eggplants to me, that was a connection to family. It was a connection to kind of like normalcy for a little bit. It kind of reminded me of times where I knew who I was. I think that was always the connection with my grandmother's cooking that it made me feel like normal again. And I would spend a lot of time with her in the kitchen specifically for that feeling and, and that feeling of family and love and happiness. And I think that's where I fell in love with food. And even at, at a young age, I was always able to really kind of like articulate what I liked about food and like articulate like the textures and the flavors and why I liked certain things. So I began cooking at a very young age as well. It was just always, it just came natural to me. And it was just something that I felt was kind of my window into happier places always. Yeah, I mean, there's a story too in the book of you being a relatively young child and going grocery shopping on your own and, and sort of going out to get the ingredients while your mom was away working so you could come home and cook. Yeah, so that, that cooking demo you were, you were talking about was in second grade. Uh-huh. And, you know, I would go out and do the grocery shopping and come back and I did a show and tell, like it was, everyone was like, you know, bringing in their lizards or whatever. And I, um, brought in barrecas, you know, which are like these pastries that are stuffed usually with like feta and spinach and topped with sesame seeds and bake. You know, I was, it was my first cooking demo and I completely flopped, like totally flopped and, you know, realized halfway through my demo that there wasn't an oven and, you know, my, second grade <laughs> classroom uh and also you know didn't bring half the ingredients and so i just pretty much stood there with like a pile of like frozen spinach and raw dough and you know tried to convince people that this was like something that would make me cool um and it didn't work very well but you kept coming back to food you know you talk a lot in the book about um and then i never cooked again <laughs> no, i'm just kidding <laughs> man that would be a totally different story a totally different book. that Thank- was all i got <laughs> yeah thankfully <laughs> thankfully that is not what happened you continued to cook there's this really clear through line of food throughout sort of your childhood and at the same time you're sort of getting into trouble getting into 
some trouble with the law. And then this figure sort of comes into your life, your home ec teacher, Donna Barnett, yeah. who it's just, you know, clear, ev- totally evident from reading your cookbook, what an influence she had. And I think you even write, you know, she knew what she was doing. Yeah, she she was really the only teacher that was able to connect with me in, in the high school level. I uh-huh. mean, by that time in my life, I had figured out a lot of very creative ways to get into trouble and to make my mom stressed out. And I was not taking life or school seriously at all. And she really saw that I had something that I could do, you know, through food. She saw that talent in me and really kind of grabbed me and said, like, we're going to do something with you. And she got me a job at a restaurant. Um, and she just really put everything she had into like seeing me reach my potential and helped me get into culinary school. And even when I was in culinary school and I would come back for like uh, a week or whatever during, during Christmas break, she would like pick me up and drive me around in her car to like different restaurants. And like we would go eat like appetizers in two different restaurants in downtown Philly and then go to a couple other restaurants and then go somewhere else for dessert. And these were all restaurants that I could never have afforded to go to. Yeah. And she knew that and she wanted to kind of show me what restaurants were, like what these these places were all about and what the feeling that customers have while they're there. And, and she would talk to me about what the chefs were doing and what the servers were doing, you know, like she didn't have to do any of that, but she did. And and it, it really helped me. Yeah. It's this incredible story. I think that really just shows, and she's one of several mentors in the book, but mm-hmm. really just shows the power of mentorship. So there's really all these little wonderful, almost vin- extended vignettes, right? To tell the story of your life. Yeah. There aren't five chapters sort of to your life. There's, you know, several dozen chapters. Sure. And sometimes there's two recipes that correlate with that chapter. And right. sometimes there's six or seven. Yeah. How did you decide to structure it that way? Well, Tina Antolini, who is a dear friend and also co-author on the book, when I, when I approached her and said, Hey, I want to write a cookbook and I'd love for you to help me with it. Uh, I already knew that I wanted to tell these stories. I just didn't quite know how to frame it. And she recommended that I read uh, Home Cooking by Lori Colwin. Yeah. Um, which is kind of this very narrative-driven cooking life memoir that has recipes that just kind of like pop up every once in a while. Um, and it's kind of unpredictable. And as you're reading it, you're not quite sure what the next page is going to bring. And I really liked that about the book. And when we started to write, you know, I just wrote my stories before I started thinking about what recipes were in there. Of mm-hmm. course, like there are recipes that are important to me and that I make at the restaurants or I make at home a lot. But the good thing is that all of those things are my life story too, you know, and that, and so they were going to be in there no matter what. But as I started to write, it ended up being 26 kind of short stories of all of these, whether it was my a, a chapter about my father being from Romania and his journey escaping communist Romania into Israel and into America, um, or it was a chapter about Hurricane Katrina and uh, me cooking red beans and rice for people after the storm, uh, or it was a story about me moving to Italy to kind of explore this love of Italian cooking. And and Italy is like four chapters because there's all these different moments. So throughout each chapter, there are these moments where the food really mattered. 
and and it changed something in me or it helped guide me from one direction to another. Or I could look back at that story and be inspired to do a dish from that moment. So there's a chapter called Fishing with My Father, where my father and I, this is after my parents divorced and we kind of had been estranged for a while. And then we finally, like years later, would go out fishing together and he would cook up these fish that we caught in brown butter and parsley and lemon. And so like that recipe is very literal. But then there's also recipe of like the hamantaschen that I made when I was nine years old by myself and how that was the first thing that I ever cooked on my own. Like it's, there's a better hamantaschen recipe in there than the one that I made when I was nine. <laughs> I'm not using like cherry can, like cherry, canned cherry pie filling right. in it. So some of the recipes are more literal. Some of them are more inspired by that moment. And, and I think that's kind of a great thing. And then there's all these great illustrations throughout the book too that Francis Rodriguez did. She's a friend of mine from New Orleans and a very talented artist. And she helped me kind of illustrate these thoughts that were going through my mind at the time of these stories and put them down so that as you look at the illustration, you're wondering how that's going to fit into the story. And then you read the story. And then all of a sudden, like these the food that's being talked about throughout that story blossoms into this recipe afterwards. Yeah, it's really beautiful the way you've structured the book and all the the illustrations. And we sort of are learning along with you how food impacts you. And then, of course, sort of the end of the book is returning to Israeli cooking and returning yeah. to your roots. And I, I think as a reader, I sort of got a sense that that journey and process sort of started to speed up a bit right when you're at culinary school, when you're at the CIA. There's a few anecdotes and stories in there about um, with some fellow classmates starting the Jewish Food Society sure. at the CIA. Is that sort of when the intense focus on sort of going back to your roots and the cooking no. heightened? No, not at all. It, it was me kind of just trying to learn about myself at that time and use somewhat of some part of my story to create something which, you know, I was not executing very well. There there's an uh, anecdote in the book about how we, you know, made falafel, but it was probably like seasoned with yuzu or, you know, and right. then like topped with pulverized uh, goji beans or some like we were like in school and had no I like had no idea how to really cook or how to think about food. And so sure. yeah. we were just kind of like all of these ingredients and things that we thought were interesting. We would always try to like figure it out and make it work. It was like really in 2011 that I uh, took a trip to Israel and kind of reconnected with who I was from a culinary standpoint and from a family history standpoint. It was always in there and it was food that I cooked and ate and loved and thought about but it never occurred to me that I would open a restaurant like that. And after Dominica had been open and I'd been cooking for a while and started becoming more confident as a chef, uh, then I took this trip to Israel and the food looked different to me. You know, I would see like piles of cherries and piles of cilantro and piles of onions. And I'd think, okay, that can be a salad versus like that can be cherry pie and that can be chimichurri sauce and that can be like, you know, caramelized onions. I, I, I was able to kind of look at everything and already know like, here's what this, this can do or th what I can do with this. Uh, and then I came back to America and that's when I really started calling my mom 
like researching the things that my grandmother used to cook for me and talk to me about um, and really starting to put some of that stuff down on paper and then going into the kitchen and cooking it in a way that I was confident in doing versus just trying like as a young chef to figure it out and stumble along the way. Yeah. And you were at the time you were cooking at Domenico, which is an Italian yeah. restaurant. And you sort of talk about starting to sneak some of these things into yeah. the menu there. Right. And this right. sort of maybe not culminates, but sort of peaked with the cauliflower recipe, yeah. the famous cauliflower recipe. The cauliflower recipe was the first thing that I did when I came back from Israel. I had a cauliflower dish at Abraxas, which is owned by the same chef that owns Miznon. He's the one that like originated in my head, like this whole roasted cauliflower dish and. I came back and was so inspired by that. And I figured out like a version of it that I thought was unique to me and how I roasted it in the wood burning oven and, and cooked it with butter and extra virgin olive oil and chilies. And then I did a whipped feta cheese with it, which was kind of like my take on labna with right. that dish. Uh, people went crazy for it. Like people loved it. We were selling about 700 heads of cauliflower a week at Dominica wow. in its heyday. Uh, and then I kept going further and further and I, I was calling, you know, shakshuka, like Italian baked eggs. And I was like doing buttermilk biscuits and like putting za'atar on them. And, and like all, all of a sudden I started to like really start connecting with, with who I really was, like who, where my family came from. And it came very easy. It wasn't as hard for me to figure it out as it was when I like had to figure out how to cook Italian food and I had to like move to Italy and I had to apprentice out there to do that. And with Israeli food, like it was always in me. It just never showed until I was ready for it too. I, I called the cauliflower the gateway drug to the rest of the Israeli food that I was cooking. Um, and then eventually it got to a point where I was cooking it. I was like, the menu kept going more and more towards that, that I had to open an Israeli restaurant in New Orleans. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Alon Shaya as we talk Hurricane Katrina and how Alon responded to a major Me Too moment in the New Orleans restaurant scene. Now, we had to cut out part of our conversation about Alon's home ec teacher, Donna Barnett, but I did want to note that in 2016, Alon and Donna partnered to launch the Shaya Barnett Foundation, which provides culinary education to high school students. So fall is unquestionably the busiest season in the cookbook industry, with publishers working to release major titles before the holiday season. So we chatted with Paula Forbes, founder of Stained Page News and cookbook critic, about some of the trends that she's seen in this fall's batch of new cookbooks. Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. So I can't believe it's fall already. Cookbook season is here. And I'm wondering if you have some trends you can share with us that you're seeing as you look through this fall's cookbooks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some years I've found that books tend to swing toward the super easy, simple cooking end of the spectrum. And some years tend to be very complex um, chef and restaurant years. And this year, what I'm seeing is a trend that I think a lot of people will be really excited to hear about, okay. which is that there are a lot coming out that um, have realistic expectations of home cooks, but don't sacrifice flavor. Uh, so what I'm talking about is Yodamoto is a favorite of a lot of people. Right. He has a book coming out called Simple. Um, I would argue that simple does not mean easy. I've cooked out of this book some. It's not, you know, super, super easy, but it is a lot less complex than his other books. So I think that'll be a welcome change for some people. Okay. Um, Julia Turch's book coming out. Um, yeah. Now and again, it 
pictures, menus, um, make ahead planning, lots of ideas to do with leftovers. She also just has like great fresh ideas for dinners. And then Nick Sharma's season, um, and he has a big focus on flavor and draws on his background to bring in unexpected flavors in really beautiful ways. So I think those three books are just going to be total workhorses for people for a long time to come. Yeah, great, great books for home cooks. So are we not seeing quite as many chef driven or restaurant books this fall? Or just are they sort of of a different vein? So the interesting thing that's happening with chef and restaurant books this year is in the past, I found that the restaurant book tends to be this like very serious, glossy shrine to the restaurant. But we've got a few books coming out this year that have a little bit more fun with the format. And I'm thinking specifically of the, I I think, sarcastically titled Very Serious Cookbook um, (laughs) from the chefs behind uh, Wild Air and Contra in New York City. Um, That's co-authored with Alison Roman, who, of course, wrote Dining In. Right. Then the Joe Beef Cookbook, um, it's their second cookbook called Surviving the Apocalypse. Right. Um, and it's it's not quite as dire as that sounds, but um, you know they have a lot of fun with what they do. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for that context. Our bookshelves are already filling up with these great fall cookbooks, and we'll talk to you soon, Paula. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Now, we love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning about different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their expert teachers. And, of course, I love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, the backdrop of all Salt and Spine interviews. Now, don't miss upcoming classes on topics like Indian street food or tartine-style breads. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. And now it's time for our Into the Kitchen segment, where Salt and Spine executive producer Allison Sullivan and I cook from this week's book. Hey, Allison, ready to start cooking? I am. Awesome. So today we're making a couple recipes from Alan Shia's cookbook, Shia, right? I think we've got hummus and falafel on the schedule, and you're working on the hummus. Yes. So I have the chickpeas right here. Just for context, Alan's recipe is a three-step process. First, you soak them overnight, pretty Mm -hmm. standard. Then the second step is you bake them um, and put some baking soda on them. Oh, interesting. So you you bake them just to dry them out a little bit more. And I think the process is probably to help remove the skins easier. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, and you really want to make sure you remove the skins so that you get a really creamy, smooth, um, nice full-bodied hummus. Yes, exactly. Okay. Then after that, we're going to uh, rinse them, which I'm going to do right now, um, help get all those skins off. And then we boil them. And there's the three-step process. Okay, awesome. And then after after they're boiled, you're going to show us what to do with the food processor, yeah? Yeah, we're going to, um, in Alon's words, let her rip. So we have the chickpeas in here that are they're puree, and they're going to go for quite a while. But what else is in the food processor then, Allison? All of them are pretty standard. I would say that you'd find in a hummus, you have water, some lemon juice, olive oil, tahini, some salt, ground cumin... And Alon says to monitor as well, you know, once you're done, these should go for a full five minutes. Once you're done, can taste, 
add a little here and there to make it to your desired consistency and flavor. Yeah. And you can't really over-process the hummus, right? You can just really continue to aerate it. No, you want to get a lot of body in there. This is like a no-fail process. Yeah. Well, it's looking pretty good. So that is going in the food processor and we're just going to let that go for a minute. And then actually over here, I've got the falafel batter ready to go. Um, So we started this with a similar process of soaking the chickpeas overnight, dried chickpeas, uh, to bring them back to life a little bit. And he calls this falafel his bright green falafel. Um, so you can see, right, it's really just bold and green and full of color. Very green. Yeah. And that's, that's all the herbs in here. So it's a lot of parsley. Um, but one thing that's really unique and, and this, this batter is ready to go. We're going to form them into balls and we can fry them in a moment. But one thing that's really unique, his recipe calls for two egg whites that are whipped to stiff peaks and you fold those into the batter, um, right towards the very end after the chickpeas and the parsley and everything has been pureed in the food processor. It holds the batter together really well and gives it a lot of structure um, without making it really dry. So that is really unique and and really keeps these light and delicious. Interesting. Yeah. So should we fry a few? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. We've got some oil here. So these will take about like four or five minutes. And actually, Alon makes a good note here that it looks like they're done before they're done. So partially what that egg white does, too, is locks in a lot of moisture in there. So you can sort of let these go until they get a really nice dark golden brown, um, and they're not going to dry out. Oh, great. I was going to ask what color they should be. Yeah, you want them to be pretty dark brown and then, you know, not black. Pretty dark brown, um, not burnt, uh, but let them go for a little bit, make sure they're done, and then cut one open, and it'll be bright green inside, really light and delicious. And, you know, you can throw these on top of that great hummus that's almost done over there, um, grab some pita, really nice quick dinner. Now back to our conversation with Alon Shia. So you're cooking in New Orleans and Katrina hits, and I think there's these really powerful stories in the book of seeing Katrina sort of through your mm-hmm. eyes. And I think also really like a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging and just really feeling like a, a sense of um, connection to New Orleans that maybe you hadn't felt before yeah. going through that experience. And in particular, there's a story about helping rebuild Willie Mays Scotch yeah. House, which you know is an institution in sure. New Orleans. Katrina uh, was very grounding experience for me, and it really uh, helped me define the way that I thought about food. So, from a very young age, when I would cook something and hand it to somebody, I would they would smile, they would be happy. I would feel like I was doing something like productive. And, you know, throughout my high school years where like people didn't even want to look me in the eye, I could cook something and and get a reaction from somebody and feel like I was validating my actions in whichever way it was. And that's why I loved food. And that's why I loved cooking, right? There was that emotion every single time. There was this like emotion of like me doing something and then happiness ensued in one way or another. And, you know, once I went to culinary school and, you know, I found myself way more lost, like trying to reach for something to cook, trying to discover something or invent something or be on the cutting edge of everything that was happening. You know, the food suffered because of that. And with Katrina, you know, I was just making like really crappy version of red beans and rice because there was no like onions or peppers or sausage or yeah any perishable product was not usable in New Orleans for months right. unless you like brought it in. So we made these like red beans and rice with just like 
beans, rice, lots of Tabasco and like a lot of seasoning and water and chicken base, you know, to give it flavor. And the reaction that I was getting by handing people red beans and rice after the storm, these people that were just saved from the roof of their homes or beings or or just had saved somebody or, you know, a lot of National Guard, a lot of um, police officers, I would get that reaction. I would get that. It was that same very simple, like, I'm so happy to be eating this, you know, and, and like I, I knew what they were going through every day. I knew what I was going through and what the city was going through. And knowing that like just handing somebody a plate of hot food can make things normal again. And, and so I was reminded of that and it really kind of shifted the trajectory of thought on how I wanted to cook. Um, and right after the storm, well, several months after the storm, I found myself cooking for a group of people that were rebuilding Willie Mae's Scotch House. It was the whole team from the Southern Foodways Alliance mm-hmm. from Oxford, Mississippi, like yeah. John Currents and John T. Edge and Pablo Johnson was there. Uh, they were there with a whole group of people and they were hammering and nailing away and I was making them lunch on the sidewalk. And that too was a moment of like, this is what food is about, right? Like it's not about the next new dish. This It's about bringing things together and, and making things whole again in one way or another. So I got to know Willie Mae and I discovered that her favorite wine was Manuschewitz. Right. Um, so I would, every time I would come to cook lunch there, I would bring a bottle of Manuschewitz. She would sit in her wheelchair on the sidewalk and drink, drink it right out of the bottle. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm thinking like, man, she's like really going hardcore on this Manuschewitz. And she's thinking like, this is one of the most devastating things that ever happened to her in her life. And I could see that the Manuschewitz like brought some, some happiness to her. Yeah. And, uh, and so I named the chapter Manuschewitz for Willie May. And there's a recipe for, um, Zatar fried chicken as a kind of like an homage to, to her legacy and to that moment in life for me where I was discovering like what just good fried chicken means to people versus right. trying to discover a new way to do fried chicken. Right. Now, when you're doing an autobiographical book, of course, you can't shy away from the bad times either. And we see some of those in here. Um, but one that we don't see is the one that took place, a pretty public one that took place after the book was published, right? So it's, yeah. it's clear in the book the impact that John Besh had on your career. And then, of course, after the book was published, you your business relationship with John Besh ended as a, a byproduct of um, the revelation that he had been accused of sexual harassment by a couple dozen former employees. What was that like for you being involved? And ultimately, you know, that sort of led to the end of your business relationship and the restaurants that you helped create. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, you put trust in people and hope that you can kind of count on them. And, you know, just generally, I think I learned a lot through that experience of how to kind of to just kind of stand my ground a little bit more, you know, and, and, uh, the decision was very easy. Actually, the decision ended up costing me a lot, but I stand behind my decision that, you know, I needed to pave a new path forward and that I could do more good if I surround myself with the right people. 
And so that's kind of how Pomegranate Hospitality was formed in October of 2017. And, and that's your new restaurant venture. It's our hospitality group. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's something that was born from a set of values that our team came together really right after, uh, I left Shia. Um, I hired an entire executive team of people that I had been working with, Kara Peterson and Meredith Dunbar and Zach Engel and Sean Courtney. And then we brought on Susie Dare, who's our director of people and culture. And together as a team, we formed this set of values for Pomegranate. And it's nine core values and it it's respect, it's accountability, it's equality, communication, education, and all of these values are built into the framework of our company and of our restaurants and how we go about our day. So everything from when you are being interviewed for a job, you have to answer to the values that are the core of our company. So we might ask you a question about education and why that's important to you or about organization and how you organize yourself or about accountability and how you hold yourself accountable for what your actions are and how you hold other people accountable. Our mission is to create this like very safe and and comfortable workspace for people. And that has to be a conversation by all people at all times, right? You can't kind of create this trickle down communication. It, It really has to be this community driven way of communicating. So everything that we do at Pomegranate tries to bring that out and, we we've set up several different things that are checks and balances to make sure that people feel like they have a voice, that they have a seat at the table, that they're being treated fairly and that they're treating other people fairly. And it's been really amazing to see like once you kind of set the tone for that and us as a team, it was so many of us that came together and worked very hard on creating this. I'm not trying to say that I like do this. I I do this with several different people that all work very hard on it. And together we've been able to set this tone that people follow and they want to. And we attract people that want to work in, in a place where they feel comfortable talking about things that aren't comfortable talking about. And if you created a, an environment that way, It'll pay off huge dividends in the future just from the amount of happiness you can create in your workplace every day to how the customers feel and how much money the restaurant makes. I mean, all of it has to happen with happy, good people. Um, and you can't just say it. You have to set up a structure for it. So that's what we've worked really hard on. So I think it's really a, a great case study uh, um, for folks to look at what you've done with Pomegranate Hospitality. And now you have two restaurants under Pomegranate yes. Hospitality, yes. which are Saba and Safta. Saba, which means grandfather in Hebrew, and Safta, which means grandmother. Uh-huh. And Saba is in New Orleans and Safta is in Denver. And uh, they've opened... Uh, all this year, like we've, we've had a big year in October. It was just one employee and, and right. now we're at 170 employees, right. which is amazing. And our team has worked so hard on it and it's been really beautiful to see. I mean, it's so amazing to see, uh, our team members, like our chef at Safta in Denver. Her name is Jessica Nowicki and to sit there and listen to her interview somebody and say like, how, 
Have you like handled a problem in the past that you didn't agree with your supervisor and, and tell us about how like you held yourself accountable and you held them accountable and how did it go and how did it turn out? And would you do it again if you had the chance yeah. and like asking questions like that and, and watching her ask those questions is so like fulfilling to me because I can see how now this idea of furthering love and res- mutual respect, like how it just multiplies when you bring people together that truly believe that and that truly want that in their everyday, it just increases and grows and multiplies. And th- that's been the most beautiful thing for me to to kind of see throughout this whole thing. That's so important. Yeah. Now, before we close, we usually end with a little rapid fire round of questions. Okay. So I, I noticed at the end of the book, there's this beautiful picture of you and your father eating yeah. in Shia. Um, so I thought it'd be fun if I named a few of the characters in your book, right? We see okay. so many people in your life. And if you can share a recipe that you think of when I say who say this person. Okay. Um, so let's start with your softa, your grandmother. Lutenitsa. It's yeah. the first recipe in the book. It's, I think, the most important. There's uh, Lutenitsa at Saba and at Safta on the menu, and it's the dish that I feel I fell in love with food for. Yeah. How about your father? My father, I think the um, turkey sandwiches. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we would go fishing, and he would make these turkey sandwiches with like white bread and right. deli turkey meat, and they would get super soggy in the cooler. <laughs> And, uh, that's one of the recipes where we didn't take it literally. And now there's a, a really good turkey sandwich recipe in the book. Um, how about Vincenzo DeSantis or Enzo, the pizza Enzo. maker? Yeah. Uh, his claim to fame is pizza Enzo. And it's, uh, he was my pizzaiolo, my mentor, and he taught me so much about pizza. And there's a recipe in the book for pizza that has anchovies and tomato and basil and spicy chili oil and a little bit of fresh mozzarella and oregano. And then it's topped with thinly sliced mortadella on top. And that's that's my ode to pizza Enzo. Yeah, delicious. How about Donna Barnett, your home ec teacher? Pound cake. So she, she, uh, I, I used to sell cream cheese pound cakes from a bakery when I was in high school. And, uh, I told Donna that I really loved this cream cheese pound cake. And she showed up to my house with, uh, three different pound cakes that were all made in different ways with the recipes all written out and all the different methods so that I could taste the difference and see which one I liked before I chose which recipe that I wanted to keep making. That's awesome. So that's, that's Donna's magic right there. That's great. Yeah. Um, and last, but certainly not least, what recipe do you think of when you think of your wife, Emily? Red beans and rice. Yeah. She's um, also known as the bean queen. She makes a big pot of red beans and rice at our home every Monday and we invite anywhere between eight to 20 people over. It's kind of the same. Everyone gets the, this like reoccurring invite and whoever can make it makes it. And we sit around and catch up and drink wine and eat red beans and rice. And it's kind of like we call it our Cajun Shabbat. That's awesome. Yeah. What a great note to end on. Thanks so much, Alon. Thank you. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, good. How are you doing, Brian? Great. So we just talked with Alon Shaya about his first cookbook. I'm hoping you have something to share with us today. Well, 
you know, I think Israeli food is so exciting. And a lot of people, I think, conflate Jewish food with Israeli food, which mm -hmm. is they're thinking more of the food of their Passovers, of their Eastern European grandmas and, and matzo ball soup and things like that. Sure. And in fact, Israeli food really is the story of Middle Eastern food. And that blend of those is when you go there, it's hard to even distinguish between them. But it's this wonderful blend of, you know, of a lot of vegetables, a lot of spices. One of the first Israeli cookbooks came out in 1962, okay. which um, Alon actually bought for me. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's really exciting that now there are all these stories being told about Israeli food. I think Ottolenghi really opened the door for that. And uh, people are getting really excited about it, as they should be. He did. Yeah, Yotam Ottolenghi really, I think, paved the way across the globe. And then here in the US, we've really, I think, seen a resurgence, particularly around foods like hummus, right, which weren't sort of commercially available not that long ago, and I mean, now are just exploding. if you don't carry za'atar in your, <laughs> in your corner grocery store, right. you're screwed. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's great. He's really, uh, he has made all of that possible in the way that, you know, Paula Wolfert introduced tagines to America and Mor Moroccan food. I mean, you know, it's just wonderful, because now we get to make that kind of food at home and understand understand it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that context, Celia. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find a recipe for Alon's marinated soft cheese with herbs and spices. You can hear Alon reading an excerpt from his cookbook and enter our giveaway to win your own copy of Shia. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Paula Forbes at Stain Page News. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Yeah. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, -face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>